If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the referral with me, Dr. Curran. Now, if you're interested in medicine or science or are just interested in improving your own health, you're in the right place. Every week, we're going to be debunking myths, having expert insights from guests, and also giving you science-based strategies to make you healthier and hopefully happier and feed your curiosity. In this week's episode, we're talking about autism. Autism is a lifelong neurodevelopmental condition which affects how people interact and communicate with the world. Current estimates suggest that more than one in a hundred people are on the autism spectrum. So there are millions and millions of people who are either autistic or who have autism spectrum disorder. People who have autism or who have autism spectrum disorder are known as neurodivergence. They literally have a brain that is different in structure and anatomy. If you know someone with autism, you may have noticed that they can learn, behave, communicate, and even interact with the world completely differently to other people. And as I mentioned, autism is on a spectrum. So some people can require a lot of help and specialist care. And some people, you may not be able to tell the difference between someone with autism and without autism. For the first time on this podcast, I'm joined by not one, but two guests, David and Carrie Grant. They have three children of their own, all of whom have been diagnosed with autism. Now, both of these guys are BAFTA award-winning broadcasters. You may have heard them or seen them in the hit show Pop Idol, where they're well-known vocal coaches. You are considered less than, so you have to be better than to be perceived as equal to. Please don't tell me you're neurodivergent as well. The onus is on the person to change when actually it's the world that needs to change. So I grew up listening to respond with the kids that we have. I've had to learn to listen to understand. And a bit later, I'll be answering your questions using all the knowledge and experience I've gained working as a doctor in the NHS for over 10 years. Now, if you've got your own burning question you want in this show, feel free to get in touch at theReferralPod.com. And if you're not satisfied with that and you want even more deep dives into your interesting questions and to feed your curiosity, you can subscribe to The Referral Plus on Apple Podcasts. David and Carrie Grant. So I've already introduced you, but tell me and tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about yourselves. Um, My name is David Grant. I've been in the entertainment business for four, five decades now, starting off first as a singer, then a songwriter, then vocal arranger, producer, vocal coach, then um, talent show judge, presenter. And um, most recently, Carrie and I have been advocating uh, for our children and our children are children with special needs. And that's become sort of the driving focus of our lives. Yeah. So I've done pretty much the same career as David. He's had a few more hits than I've had (laughs) uh, by a long shot. Uh, But my passion has been about advocacy 
in health education and social care. So um, I've been working in that field for about two decades, or actually three decades now. Wow. Yeah, something I really, really care about. And you're both very busy people with so many different uh, things going on in your life, various projects, but yeah. you've also got three children who have autism. Tell me how that is being parents and living your lives with this every day. Yeah. Well, we've we've got a neurospicy family. We've got neuro four. Spicy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah neurospicy. Neuro we're, we're all neurospicy. <laughs> so um, we, we have four children, three birth, one adopted. Um, as you said, three um, have autism and or ADHD and all the disses, yeah. <laughs> the dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyspraxia. dyspraxia. Yeah, yes. lots of disses. And then... Um, our youngest, our adopted son, um, he has a thing called DMDD, which is Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder, along with ADHD. So there's a lot in there. And I, and I suppose in answer to your question, what what is this like day to day? Well, I suppose when we started with our family, our oldest is 28, he goes mm. 28, 21, 17 and 13. So oh, wow. big spread. Big, yeah. Um, I think you set out on your parent journey thinking, right, this is how parenting is going to be. And David and I had very clear ideas about that. And um, and then we found out that wasn't to be the case. And so we had to shapeshift into being the parents that we needed to be for our children, which yeah. means four different ways of parenting, actually. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap, but there's also being, you know, each child's specific needs need to be met. Also, our children are mixed race. Also, our children, three of them are trans on and or non-binary. And so there's... There's a lot of intersections yeah. happening that we have to be able to respond to in ways that are helpful to our children. Hello, listeners of The Referral. It's me, Dr. Curran. Are you tired of scouring the internet for medical answers only to end up on shady websites? Is your For You page full of TikTok experts pushing miracle weight loss drugs and superfoods? There's so many myths and nonsensical health advice out there on the internet, but on our weekly crowd science episodes, I'm helping real listeners like you get the truth. Subscribe to The Referral Plus and you'll get access to additional crowd science episodes every week devoted entirely to answering your questions. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll enjoy ad-free listening of all our episodes. You can even try it for free. Just head over to the referral show page on Apple Podcasts and click on the Try Free button at the top of the page to start listening today. Have a question of your own? Visit thereferralpod.com and submit it. There is no question too weird or too awkward for me. So what are you waiting for? Don't let the internet deceive you. Subscribe now to the Referral Plus and start getting answers today. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, I mean, you mentioned three of your children, you know, have autism. And obviously the autism is a spectrum from mild to severe. 
And actually, I guess a lot of people can easily paint someone with autism as, okay, you've got these fixed features, but, you know, everyone's an individual and we're all wired in slightly different ways. Even, you know, autistic people have their own, you know, idiosyncrasies, as it were. Do you find that there are significant variances in those three children as well in terms of how different they are in how they manifest their, you know, characteristics with autism? Such a good question, because that is exactly what we find. Um, you know, th there's an old saying, if you've met an autistic person, you've met an autistic person. One. You one, Yes, you've met one autistic person. You, that's all you've met, yeah. one autistic person. Our three children, the way that their autism presents is entirely different. Yeah. Also, you know, the things that they're anxious about are entirely different. The way that they interface with the world is entirely different. And I think there's a uniqueness to autism that that people will look at somebody and say, oh, that person is like that because they're autistic or that person is autistic and therefore they're not going to be able to do this, that and the other. For instance, when our second child was in school, um, we would say to members of the primary school that they have an autism diagnosis and we'd be told, well, the diagnosis is wrong because they make eye contact. And mm. if they're autistic, they couldn't make eye contact. Whilst it's true some people on the spectrum don't make eye contact, others do. Yeah. And we have this horrible thing, this word called high, these words, high functioning, uh, which yeah. kind of suggests that there is a, a bottom scale, yeah, which is really great, awful. There are gradients and then, a, you know, and, and, then, and then it really is about being neurotypical passing, normal passing, uh, and that's not helpful. Probably a lot of the blame for society's view that there's high functioning is probably from these films like Rain Man, where you've got someone who's <laughs> autistic savant, mm -hmm. yeah. and they focus more on the savant that, okay, so, you know, people with autism or autistic people are geniuses and they, yes. that, that leads in terms of you know we we then because of those hollywood films we neglect the fact that actually you know some autistic people can have significant detriments and a worsened quality of life because of some you know cognitive uh, issues they have and severe social awkwardness and communication issues and we you know think okay they're, they're geniuses they can deal with life and it's only 10% of people roughly who've, who are autistic may have those, you know, expert level, you know, skills. Yes. We've got to remember that sometimes those expert levels of skills come from the fact that our children have intense interests. Yes. Focus so if someone has yeah. spent 12 hours a day thinking about something yeah. and a neurotypical and person and hasn't, like delving into <laughs> the it. chances are they will become expert at that yeah. thing. When did you first pick up any signs or hints that you, these three children had autism? Was it very early on? And what were the you know, things that you noticed which led you down that path? Gosh, um, in, in our book, A Very Modern Family, which has uh, just recently uh, come out about, about autism, about our family, about neurodivergence, about raising children with mental health sort of challenges um, and neurological challenges, we start by talking about a journey on a plane about getting into an airport and being on the interconnecting train between dis disembarking and collecting our luggage and our child hearing the intercom, our now 17, who was two at the time, and screaming at the sound because what we didn't realize is that their presentation of autism means that their hearing is like supersized. They, they have hear. hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivity. I mean, if we whisper in another room and, and mm. Arlo can hear us, it's just incredible. But we didn't know this at the time, just a massive discomfort. We started thinking, 
well, that's unusual. Yeah. And then there was the health visitor. Yeah, I, I took uh, Arlo to the health visitor. So Arlo was three, I think, actually. We took Arlo and the health visitor. I mean, thank goodness. Some of these, some of these people, some of the professionals are incredible. Yeah. You just get that magical person that takes one look at your child and says, mm, I've seen this. That level of experience. And yeah. this health visitor was amazing. Took one look at Arlo and said, I think your child might be autistic. Do you mind if I put your child forward for an assessment? So actually, it was really simple. Quick. Really simple, really quick. Not the same for Thailand, not the same for most children. Um, But I think the way that Arlo presents, uh, a little bit more extreme and also has ADHD. Right. So I think if you're autistic and you've got ADHD, that's quite a combination. You know, your ADHD brain is writing checks that your ASD brain can't cash all day long. It's it's a bit of a conflict. I mean, if you think about the stereotypical ADHD traits, sometimes Mm -hmm. very high energy and, you know, in many cases, very social that's a contrast with some of the common stereotypical autistic traits. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so you get these things that are almost in conflict yeah. where you've got a child who's uh, perpetually active and then perpetually exhausted. Because, <laughs> it's like total because, cognitive dissonance. Absolutely, complete <laughs> cognitive dissonance. The other thing with, with, with Arlo that was brilliant is that Arlo, uh, another hint, was Arlo would refer to himself in the third person. Right. Like tug you and go, she's thirsty. That's really interesting. I think it's, you know, more and more we're understanding. It would be ridiculous for us to say we know everything about autism or neurodivergent tendencies because we don't. I mean, that depends on how much we understand about the brain. And we know very little about the brain. But we do know that people who are neurodivergent have literally a different structure in their brain anatomy is different. Some of the different parts of the brain might have larger or smaller volumes and the sort of neuron connections might be different. So this naturally leads to autistic people, you know, perceiving the world in a completely different way. And we're not accommodating for that. We're thinking it's just a psychological... We think of it as less than yeah, rather than different. Mm. You know, what's to say in another 30 years, there won't be more and more autistic people or neurodivergent people. And actually neurotypicals have to get assessed for neurotypicalness. (laughs) You know, how about that? You're not special (laughs) enough to be, yeah. (laughs) I do think think one of the things that's been a positive and is being a positive in, in... it's negative in that it affects people, but it's positive in the response that has been so many young people now are experiencing mental health challenges. The same kind of challenges that autistic people um, experience daily because of the, the number of stimuli that, yeah, that, that yeah. you've both been discussing. As soon as something begins to hit the mainstream, affect the mainstream to the detriment of the mainstream, it suddenly becomes a mainstream issue. So what we're finding, and I'm sure that what you're finding in your profession is that what has been considered to be exclusively excluded to the margins Mm. is now becoming more central. People are now beginning to look and say, what can we do? What adjustments do we need to make sure that the one in six kids who aren't in school anymore can come back to school? Well, here in the neurodivergent community, we've been saying for years, what can you do to get our kids back to school? And the answer has been nothing or very little. Now it's suddenly on the agenda. So this conversation is is now beginning to become something that people who's 
families don't have autism in them, people whose families don't have what can be classified or was previously classified as neurodivergence in, are now beginning to be affected by. The, the things that we're discussing here now are beginning to touch everybody. So when your autistic children, you know, when they were younger maybe, or even now, if they had a, a meltdown or some sort of really difficult episode they were trying to get through or a tantrum when they were younger, what would you do to sort of calm mm. them down and kind of get them out of that yeah. uh, phase? So the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum is an hour and a half. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so tantrum is what all kids have, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I, but, but I want the lolly. I yeah. want the lolly. You know, I'm going to die without the lolly. <laughs> you just go, you're not having the lolly. And that's, the, you know, after five minutes, they realize you're not going to give in and that's it <laughs> yeah. but a, a, a meltdown an autistic meltdown is something else it's, it's the build-up of absolute intolerance around everything that's going on around them until and the anxiety is so overwhelming that they cannot cope with life wow and when a child is in that space, I think the first thing that we learned was this is not the time to try and teach them a lesson. Mm. So um, so that's the first thing, you know, you need to get up off the ground. You know what you need to do. You need to include yourself more at school and get yourself a friend. You, there's no point in saying any, they're not going to learn anything because no, they can't hear anything. No, just having a, a meltdown, it's not a coaching hear. opportunity. It's yeah, not a coaching yeah, no. opportunity. Secondly, we cannot solve their problem. Yeah. As parents, the first thing we want to do as parents is, I want to solve your problem. Here's the solution. I've got it here, right here. Yeah. It's going to work for you. They don't want to know that. They're completely dysregulated. The third thing is that if we get dysregulated, then you have two people dysregulated. You have the child and yourself. The better thing is to de-escalate in whatever way you can, whether that is, would you like me to leave the room? Do you want me to sit by you? What would you like me to do? I And then repeat whatever they say. So if they say, I hate school, you're like, you hate school. I'm hearing what you're telling me. I, I No one likes me there. It's awful. No one likes you there. It's awful. I'm hearing you. So to really hear so, what they say, repeating back what they say until they're in a space where they can't. If they say, I want you to just F off, then you go, okay, I'm going to leave the room now. If you want me to come back in, I'll come back in. I'm just going to be outside. So that may, you may think, what? They, they just said that to their parent? But actually, that moment, all you're trying to do is de-escalate. Then, once that child is calm, maybe a couple of hours after or even the next day, you go back and you strike while the iron's cold. Mm, okay. So you go back to that situation. You say, okay, um, how we, how are you? Where are you at today? What's happening for you? What happened yesterday? How do we, how do we improve on how we respond to you? What might you need to change? One thing that was a bit tricky for me was just swearing at me. Mm. So there will probably all our children. I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. I dropped the f bomb at you, Mum. I'm really just talking about a 17 year old, uh, but it could happen with a five year old just as easily, and and actually just unpicking a little bit of that. And when they have these behaviours sometimes, which could be challenging for, you know, a mainstream school, for example, and their peers, their friends, uh, you know, did they encounter much bullying when they were growing all up? And they Every all Every single neurodivergent person you will meet, I guarantee will have experienced how, bullying. How do you deal with that as a parent to sort of, you know, untangle them from that situation and actually minimise bullying as they're growing older? How do you deal with that? Well, I think so much of the emphasis and the 
the onus is on the person to change when actually it's the world that needs to change. Yeah. It's school that needs to change. It's the environment and the stuff we were talking about earlier about mindset. When those things change, our children have an easier time at school. And and I so I think the, that's where we need to, you know, I feel like in a way we're raising our children to prepare them for a world that is going to be tough. But on the, on the other hand, we're trying to tell the world, please, can you help us with our children? Because their experience of life right now is not so good. Every, every neurodivergent parent or every parent of neurodivergent children has to be a bridge. You know, we're bridges. You have to be a bridge between the world that your children occupy and the world that they're trying to interface mm, with. And you have to also be an interpreter to the world of who your children are. It's almost like being bilingual. Yeah. And, you know, when Carrie was talking about listening, one of the skills that, that I've learned that I didn't grow up with that has become vital is I grew up in a, an environment, you know, um, Jamaican families, man, we just like to argue. And I don't mean <laughs> argue row. I yeah, mean, yeah. you could just like, no, no, no. I think this is right. And you get yeah. that kind of intellectual back and forth, yeah. back and forth. So I grew up listening to respond with the kids that we have, I've had to learn to listen to understand because sometimes they don't want a response. So what you're doing is you're having to interpret to a world that listens to respond and try and teach them to listen to understand. Our kids don't necessarily need a response. They don't need an answer. They need to be heard. To be heard. Interestingly, I mean, when I was growing up, my, my parents, you know, my mum's a doctor, my dad's a lawyer, and, you know, very kind of traditional jobs, as it structured. were. Structured. Structured jobs. And, you know, I'm, you know, you know, my parents are relatively conservative, coming from a Indian culture and background. You know, it was all about studies, high performance, high achievements. If I got 95, they'd be like, why didn't you get 98 kind of thing, you know? But also, you know, a loving home. I, I got everything yes. I wanted, only child, etc. But I always felt that in Asian communities and so many of these cultures where mental health, these other maybe neurodivergent conditions wouldn't be appreciated or acknowledged. Mm. But I feel in a lot of these cultures, and maybe it's the reason why historically a lot of these minority groups would not be diagnosed with ADHD, with autism, with, you Which know, is an issue. because of that maybe cultural mindset where it's not acknowledged and it's maybe just oh no he's like that because whatever he's just born like that not because actually has he is he autistic or you know do you know it's yeah. so interesting you say that we were speaking the other day uh doing a program with uh an uh an african um presenter well he was a guest actually and he's 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 a well-known comedian and he was saying that in nigeria um he was originally assessed and the assessment started with, it was his head teacher who would ask for the assessment and said, we want to know whether you are neurodivergent or whether you are just stupid. And I think that for a lot of cultures, neurodivergence is considered to be 
it's 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 another thing. a weakness or something. It's another thing. Yeah, it's like we're the wrong color in this society, so you have to fit in. We're from the wrong place, so you have to fit in. You are considered less than, so you have to be better than to be perceived as equal to. Please don't tell me you're neurodivergent as well. If you look it's at another thing, if you look at the stats, maybe okay, more than one in a hundred people, you know, with autism or on the autism spectrum disorder, right? And that's increasing now because we've got better diagnostic criteria and more awareness, but it was probably the same, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely. Growing up and all my, you know, uh, extended family in India, surely with those kind of stats, some of them would have been neurodivergent, yeah. but it was never acknowledged. I don't know a single person in my family who has a diagnosis of any mental health condition or any neurodivergent traits or any conditions, which is outstanding because that cannot be true. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Yes. So that itself is a, you know, a sort of an illustration of how it's either disregarded or covered up. It's also the need to fit in. Yeah. I think there is a deep need to fit in in any immigrant culture, mm. whether that's Jewish, Jamaican, Asian. Yeah. There is the thing you have to fit and 95 is not good enough. You need to get 98. Yeah. That's in all immigrant culture. We have to do better than what normal is. Yeah. It's the normal thing to again. To be accepted, you need to, to be, be above and beyond. You need to be above and yeah. beyond. So any setbacks are going to are gonna be felt hard. Yeah. You know, and that that's the thing. And, and that's what we need to change. I really hate the fact that there are communities that are considered by certainly health and social care as being hard to reach. I hate this. I hate that mm. phrase, hard to reach. Why are they hard to reach? not hard to reach. We're not doing they're the right things. There. They're just yes. like, you know, they're, they're sitting there waiting to be talked to. Well, even if you look at the medical professions as a whole, uh, in terms of how we deal with neurodivergency and autism, the um, DSM criteria, which is based on the American Psychiatric Association, they don't acknowledge these stims, you know, the self-stimulating yes. behavior. Yes. They don't acknowledge that as a useful thing. But if you talk to autistic people, and I've seen on social media, people talk a lot about these stims, hand waving or doing certain repetitive behaviors. Yeah. It's a calming coping mechanism. Absolutely. So why aren't the medical professionals who are in charge of dealing with autism recognizing that? Yeah, I mean, stimming is a really interesting thing. It's, that can be uh, such a calming influence. So stimming yeah. might be just walking up and down. Yeah. It might be big actions like that, big motor skill actions, but it could also be I'm sitting here picking my finger. You know, it yeah. could be it could be like a small thing that you do the whole time that is actually keeping you calm or keeping you focused. Um Neurodivergent people generally do those things a lot more. So they'll be the lip biters, the nail biters, the hand fidget. biters, fidgets, the, the fidgety people. I, yeah. I think also the you drummers know, as well, the people ah. that. Oh, yep. okay, yeah. You know, those people was that at, school kid at school that drive you nuts. Yeah. Now, now, at about the age of four, they'd have said that kid has ADHD. Then they'd just, just say, stop fidgeting. <laughs> yeah. So I'd stay completely still and my legs would be going. You know, just, <laughs> I think that part of the part of the issue with, uh, with, with what the question you just asked, and part of the answer is in much the same way as they say history is written by the winners, the diagnostic criteria is often written, well, almost always written by people who don't have a yes. diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, flapping my arms does nothing for me. Therefore, how can it be helpful for yeah. anybody? Yeah. Well, you're not autistic. If you were, you would know it were helpful. Why not? Why not? Just have a conversation <laughs> with a focus group of autistic people and discover whether it's helpful. Do you find that um, 
social media and the role it plays in raising awareness of ADHD, autism, and all of these various, you know, neurodivergent conditions, is the benefit of that raised awareness greater than the risks of misinformation and people almost romanticizing um, these conditions as like, hey, I'm ADHD, I've got no attention and kind of, you know, almost using the stereotype as the main form, almost like the the rain man, kind of glorifying certain aspects of it to say, I'm neurodivergent, and maybe they're not. They're just trying to gain views or likes or things like that. So is that is the benefit of those awareness better than all of those risks? I think that any awareness raising is great. I mean it's not my job to question someone's motivation. If they if yeah. they get something out of it for being like that's their thing. But if they're saying something helpful, and I would say there's a hundred times more helpful stuff out there than there is negative stuff. Yeah. It's not like people are, are going to start some theory no. of, you know, it's not dangerous in that way. If you're just raising awareness, you're simply talking about yourself and your traits. And that's that I think is so helpful. There will be people that have listened today that will think, oh my gosh, my child does that. My child's doing two or three of the things that they've just mentioned. Maybe, maybe I should stop telling them off and maybe I should think maybe this is something else that's going on for them or why am I always that parent that gets called up at the end of the day by the teacher because my child's done something behavioral challenges behavior is communication mm. so yeah absolutely any anything that raises awareness thank you so much it's for having good. us and also on this also some people are very reluctant to to sort of get a diagnosis or get their child diagnosed because they're worried about labels it's only a label if you're worried about the label. Mm. The label's Most, only a problem. Yeah, the label's you, only a problem. If you've got a problem with a label, we don't have a problem with a yeah. label. For us and for most families that I know who have their children diagnosed, it's been an explanation. Yeah, our it's children like, are fabulously autistic. They're fabulously autistic. They are who they are. And I think the problems arise when we have a structured, rigid understanding of what normal and acceptable is, rather than starting a quest, a journey to discover who this child is. And and then enabling them to fully become everything they're capable of becoming, regardless of the description. You know, I've already in, you know, this brief time we've been speaking, you know, as a reflection of your colorful personalities, I've just, you painted a really colorful picture of living life with autistic children and sort of navigating that sometimes very difficult landscape. So thank you both for coming on and just being so open about everything. Now, before I let you guys go, you had some questions. Yeah. I have no idea what they are. So go yeah. ahead. So I'm really, I have spent many years talking about owning your own health. I've got Crohn's disease and I feel like everything I learned through my Crohn's, I've also been able to use with our children or their differences. So shared decision-making is a really important part of the healthcare service. How surgeons, how doctors, GPs, nurses speak to the patient um, and how do we create better equality in our shared decision-making? We know that, for instance, the literacy age out there, just generally, general literacy in the UK is age nine. Yeah. So when you talk about health literacy and us being able to own our health and get better at doing our health and actually learn how to cope with long-term conditions, which many of us have these days. So there's actually, it's a, you know, it's a really good question. And uh, one of the main overarching reasons I do what I do on social media is actually to 
improve public health by raising the level of health literacy. So, you know, not using jargon, using layman's terms to describe quite complex topics. You know, you have that, you know, that paradigm where if you truly know something, you'll be able to explain it to a five-year-old. You know, while I'm not explaining something to a five-year-old, I want to, you know, have it in very basic terms that someone can understand, you know, decentralize health knowledge in a way. And that is the role of my social media. And I would say being on social media, interacting and giving information in layman's terms has vastly improved my clinical patient communication. And, you know, we have to not disregard the fact that the patient is the expert of their own life experience. So when they come to the table to have a discussion about their gallstones or their flare-up of inflammatory bowel disease, we're sitting at an equal table where I want to give them all my knowledge in simple terms so they can come to the table and we can have an equal discussion rather than a doctor-centric or a healthcare professional-centric relationship where we say, we're going to do this, this is the option, this is what's going to happen. So you have to acknowledge the patient's expertise in their own body and their own life and almost have that equal discussion where you seek to do what they want to do, and you've armed them with all the knowledge. So I, I think that is the role of my social media, but also, yes, as healthcare professionals, not be didactic in, you know, give a monologue of information and expect them to be satisfied with that. It's the end of the day, it's a patient decision, as we all know, you know, it's patient yeah. autonomy. And now we've got these new integrated care systems all over England. Are those new systems going to, have they, have you seen any improvements in shared decision making? Is it getting better or are we just talking about it but not really when it comes down to it? We're all working on a crisis mode yeah, and a lot the of conversations things, don't happen. A lot of things in healthcare take a very long time to roll out and to reach everyone. So there's a lot of, you know, inequality in that, but also inequality in, you know, we're still using uh, printed patient information leaflets and some people yeah. might be more digitally literate and they might want that. Yeah. Uh, so they might only speak, I don't know, um, Swahili or, you know, Bengali and we're not catering for that. Yeah. Someone might be rocket scientist level knowledge in uh, Bengali, but might be a three-year-old level of English. But we're treating them as a three-year-old because they can't speak English. So there's a lot of, you know, you know, inefficiencies and inequalities in healthcare because, you know, it, it, there's so many people pulling in different directions. Uh, and I don't think it will change very quickly, but there is change being made. And I think I personally think, you know, for all its downsides, there is a huge upside of social media and the stuff I do. I've had patients recognize me now and they come to my clinic and say, I've learned all about hemorrhoids and, you know, diverticular disease from your videos. And they've come on with the knowledge. And I'm like, that is actually fantastic. You know more than, you know, I did as a medical student now. Current, I love you. You are my new favorite person. Brilliant. I love that you know about <laughs> hemorrhoids and diverticular disease. Okay. That's great. You've ticked every box for me. <laughs> thank you again so much, thank guys, so much. for coming on. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Well, thank you to David and Carrie Grant for their very interesting insights into parenting three kids with autism. Now, autism is one of those conditions where we're still learning a lot about it. So naturally, there's going to be lots of pseudoscience, lots of myths, and lots of plain nonsense. And that is the point of this segment. If it ducks like a quack, I'm going to debunk some of those ridiculous myths you hear. And this episode, I'm going to be talking about autism myths. Vaccines cause autism. That is one of the biggest, most pervasive myths that we've seen about autism. And it's all thanks to one absolute idiot who lost his license as a doctor called Andrew Wick. In 1998, he published a paper where he linked autism to the MMR vaccine. And this was published in a pretty high-impact journal, The Lancet. And naturally, this caused shockwaves in the medical community. And since then, we've seen lots of controversy and lots of hesitance for many parents across the world in giving the MMR vaccine to their children. Now, the reason this is a ridiculous myth is the paper that Andrew Wakefield published was completely fabricated. And later, almost, I think, 10 years later, that paper was retracted from the Lancet because it was complete nonsense. The safety of the MMR vaccine has been studied time and time again in very, very large studies in meta-analyses where they've grouped together all of these studies and looked at the data and there is absolutely no link between any of the components of the MMR vaccine and autism. And when a child doesn't receive the MMR vaccine, they're at higher risk of these childhood infections, which could leave them, you know, struggling with development in their life. Autism can be cured. Now, I'd be lying if I told you that we knew all the causes of autism. We don't, and that's something that we are learning bit by bit. There is a genetic component, and increasingly there's an understanding that there's environmental factors as well at play. But using the word cure is slightly derogatory in terms of the language we use, because if you speak to a lot of autistic people and families, they like that part of their life, and they integrate it into their daily lives, and it's part of their identity and personality as, you know, someone with autism. Autism is a complex condition, which, as I said, we're learning more about, so it's not about a cure, but finding how society can adapt to autistic people and strategies to give autistic people so, you know, they're not so affected by the societal restrictions that we place on people with neurodivergent conditions. Just before we go, we've got a listener question in crowd science. This week, we've got a question from Khadija in Portugal. When you have a bout of diarrhea, how can you tell if it was caused by something you ate? Now, when it comes to, you know, the bugs which cause diarrhea and vomiting, it depends on the type of bug because they have different incubation periods, which means they can be dormant for several hours or sometimes even several days. And that can be much shorter within a few minutes as well. So, for example, if it's a particularly pathogenic, virulent strain, you may experience a bout of diarrhea within, you know, a few hours after eating some contaminated meat. So you've eaten a takeaway burger and it's got, 
E. coli or something like that inside it. It's particularly pathogenic and virulent and it can, you know, immediately go infect your intestinal lining, replicate and cause inflammation and diarrhea, you know, pretty rapidly. There may be other bugs which lie dormant for maybe 24 hours or 48 hours and then start to replicate and then cause their symptoms a couple of days later. It's difficult to tell whether it was specifically the food that you ate which caused the diarrhea in many cases because there may be coincidence. There may be other causes for your diarrhea. Maybe you're on antibiotics. So it's difficult sometimes to tease apart coincidence and it may just be correlation. But another common indicator that you may have eaten something which caused diarrhea is if other people who have eaten the same food also experienced diarrhea in a similar window, in a similar time frame to you, then you can identify that food has probably caused, you know, the culprit for your diarrhea because other people are affected as well. Common strategies, if you think it is a viral illness, in most cases, it is a viral illness that causes gastroenteritis. If you're sure it is that, then taking medication to stop the diarrhea is not always good because you want the virus to essentially empty from your gut. Now, one of the most important things to do when you have diarrhea, you don't always need to go to the hospital unless you're unable to tolerate food or fluids and you're vomiting so much that you're dehydrated, then you may need to go to the hospital for rehydration. But otherwise, it's just bed rest, being at home, staying hydrated, using oral rehydration solutions, which you can buy over the counter, um, you know, basically lots of drinks that have salt and sugar content, not just pure water, because that will continue just to go through you and probably worsen your dehydration. Khadija, that was a great question. Hopefully my answer will help you and other people listening as well. And we've got another question, this time from Elijah. It's quite a strange question. Sometimes, not very often, maybe twice a year or so, when I ejaculate, my jaw, the bottom corners, and tonsils hurt. Like an aching, overstretching, a cramp, do you know why this happens? I told you it was going to be unusual, but on this podcast, anything and everything goes. So Elijah, and if you and everyone else wants to hear the answer to this very strange question, you can listen to this and my deep dive and explanation to a bunch of other questions on Crowd Science Extra. You just need to subscribe to the Referral Plus. If you do subscribe to the Referral Plus, you get access to Crowd Science Extra and ad-free listening of all the episodes so far. Just visit the Referral Show page on Apple Podcasts and right at the top, you can hit the Try Free button to start your free trial today. You'll then unlock the extra episode which sits right next to this one on the feed. And don't forget, if you've got a question you desperately want me to answer, you can get in touch at thereferralpod.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Referral. So I am a real doctor, but it's very important that you know if you need urgent medical advice or any specific medical advice, you should contact your own GP or family practitioner. Please remember, nothing on this show is intended to provide or replace any specific medical advice that otherwise would have been given by your own healthcare professional. This has been a Sony Music production. Production management was Jen Mystery. Videos by Ryan O'Meara. Studio engineer, Teddy Riley. Music by Josh Carter. Grace Lakewood and Hannah Talbot were the producers. And Gaynor Marshall and Chris Skinner are the executive producers.